the rewarding qualities of the food um, have a massive, massive impact. And again, that's what's kind of un- embedded in that attentional bias kind of um, literature and the theory. Um, this kind of incentive salience, the the biological impact that these foods have. You know, they're they're substances essentially. They are addictive substances, um, sugary foods. So um, the same processes are, are going on in the brain as um, other kind of substances that are used for abuse. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today you hear from Dr Joe Davies, Chartered Psychologist and Lecturer in Applied Psychology at Cardiff Metropolitan University. Joe's research primarily explores the causes and consequences of obesity within secure psychiatric inpatient services. Following his PhD, Joe worked for the National Collaborative Commissioning Unit of NHS Wales on Welsh Government Commission projects aimed at improving care for secure inpatients and subsequently published the National Review of Secure Inpatient Services, Making Days Count. Really pleased you could join us today, Joe. Welcome. Thank you, and I'm chuffed to be here. Hi Joe, I'm David. Thanks very much for coming along today. So perhaps we could um, begin by you telling us a bit about yourself, how you got uh, involved with studying obesity and psychiatric uh, populations. Why did you become interested in this field? Sure. Yeah. No. It's um, it's uh, it's not particularly a whirlwind uh, tale, but. Um, I, I've always kind of wanted to work with with um, clinical populations, particularly people who have serious mental illness um, since kind of school times, really. Um, so I did a degree in psychology, naturally, uh, psychology and counselling studies. Um, and then wanted to kind of go into forensics. Uh, unfortunately, couldn't, for many reasons, couldn't do a, uh, a master's um, in forensic psychology. I say many reasons. It was mainly financial. <laughs> um, the other alternative was... Uh, uh, a master's in health psychology, which I didn't know an awful lot about, and I thought that was kind of um, a really interesting um, kind of kind of area. Um, kind of looking into it a bit more. So I did a MSc in uh, health psychology in Cardiff Met, um, and uh, kind of again really wanted to get into clinical work um, following the the masters, but it, you know, really really difficult naturally to find kind of applied uh, assistant psychologist posts. Um, obviously they're incredibly competitive so was kind of thinking about other options um and a phd was was kind of uh, one of those options um applied for a few but i wasn't particularly passionate about any of the projects that came up um but colleagues in um in cardiff met uh, approached me with a phd project um that also offered some really good um clinical experience working with uh, securing patients exploring obesity um, in that particular population. So, uh, you know, I bit the hand off, um, uh, essentially, uh, kind of the motivation mainly was to work with those patients whilst kind of exploring a really interesting topic, but it kind of then grew into much more of a passion project, actually working with, working with those patients, um, and seeing, um, the kind of environment they're in and, and, and how that kind of impacts both their mental health and obviously their physical health um yeah it just became much more of a passion project as opposed to a kind of uh experience 
finding mission, um, essentially. So yeah, I had, did the PhD um, and I've kind of developed this, <laughs> I like to call it a healthy obsession with, with this issue um, and trying to kind of tackle this issue, understand this, this issue. So been trying to continue it as much as possible since, since kind of finished my PhD really. Thank you. Thank you. That's, that's very clear. So Naomi and I both worked in uh, forensic health and in prison settings. And when I worked in forensic health, there used to be this rather glib and now outdated uh, saying that go to prison to get fit, go to hospital to get fat. Do you think there's any evidence for that? What kind of data do you have? Um, with regards to, I, I don't know much about the, the the prison population. Obviously, this is such a such a massively complex issue that a four year PhD in one specific population securing patient services um, wasn't enough. <laughs> so I don't know much about the the prison population. Although I am looking to kind of conduct some comparison studies in the future. With regards to um, the kind of uh, issue of of being fat and secure secure care that is you know it's, it is a significant issue um uh in 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 wales uh the average or for welsh patients the average bmi is 36 um uh, kilograms per meter squared which is in the obesity class two range um and you know that's just wales this is a global problem as well they're having similar issues in new zealand australia um north america other parts of of Europe, um, I think the, uh, there's quite a, a big range of, of kind of obesity prevalence, but it, it ranges around 30 to 80% of secure inpatient services. Um, in the UK, I think it's closer to that 80%. Um, Australia and New Zealand are doing some excellent work at trying, trying to tackle um, the problem. Um, so there is a little lower, um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a huge issue and it's, the, the kind of most stark and striking thing is that patients can um, be admitted to secure care, kind of overweight or obese, but there's still that drastic kind of spike increase in weight gain in the initial stages of treatment. So it's not just, you know, there are a population that are already kind of overweight and obese. This secure environment is having something to do with, with that weight gain, um, which is, again, one of the reasons why the uh, PhD was that the PhD did was was conducted and um and that kind of thing so yeah a real a real issue and it's definitely um that kind of that statement kind of rings true thank you of course I think there's always been uh, a kind of thought or a perception uh, um among staff and others that weight gain is is a consequence of uh, uh, psychotropic particularly antipsychotic uh, medication is 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 that true i think it's it's a yes and no so of course there's lots of excellent research that's kind of shown how certain antipsychotics particularly those atypical kind of stronger um ultimately more effective antipsychotics lanzapine and, and clozapine to name two uh um, have a high risk of, of weight gain upon treatment um uh, Lecht et al. I, I want to. I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly. I've published a few studies, and one very recently actually that um, I've shown that alanzapine in particular is is a is a high, very high risk for weight gain. It's kind of 
a fight between clozapine and olanzapine, which one is the most risky. Um, but they do certainly uh, have an impact on uh, kind of uh, patient weight. However, I've just published a study recently um, that essentially showed that uh, in the first 12 weeks of treatment, the risk associated with antipsychotics wasn't a predictor of, of weight gain, despite patients gaining significant amounts of weight. So whilst it does have some sort of impact for these patients in particular, it, you know, it, it seems to be something else. Um, and uh, you know, there's a, a big question mark around what that something else is essentially. So yeah, I, you know, antipsychotics definitely have their part to play, but it's not the be all and end all. There is something else um, having a big impact. Because we'd like to know what the something else is. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you think there are psychological factors that come into play? I think there's a few. Um, again, I think it's it's a it's a really complex issue, um, but I think there are some particular psychological factors that are, seem to be coming out in the literature. Um, and again, that I'm trying to explore more um, in my very early uh, career. One in particular, one in which I find pretty interesting is this idea around um, kind of uh, cognitive uh, processes related to attention. So um, there's this concept called attentional bias, uh, where somebody will pay um, greater amount of attention to an object or stimulus that is salient, so more meaningful to them. Um, this kind of concept was mainly based in the threat literature, but they've this has now moved on to kind of more the substance and food-based literature as well. Um, my director of studies, my PhD, actually did her PhD on um, this this very kind of concept, potential bias, uh, and and weight gain. And essentially, what you find in in many studies is that if you have the motivation to consume a substance, and the substance is um, uh, salient and available you're more likely to consume that substance and you're more likely to consume that substance to excess and have a greater bmi so we did a study in the phd um, that essentially test tested this kind of concept um, it's very difficult to do because it requires patients to sit at a computer and complete computer-based tasks sometimes it requires eye tracking software so quite invasive um, so basically in this study we essentially found that even though patients had been fed, they will attend to food stimulus the same amount as a person who has who is uh, fasted or who is hungry, which says something about their kind of um, appetite. Um, you know, despite being fed and full, they still look at food. Um, they still find it a salient stimulus. So that's one kind of uh, psychological fact that's not really been explored in this population. Um, which I would like to kind of explore further. Another core one is kind of disinhibited eating, kind of the role of disinhi disinhibition, which is common among people who are being treated in se uh, secure, secure care. Um, again, big predictive factor of binge eating is uh, kind of disin disinhibition. But also emotional eating is another big one and kind of comfort eating. And the thing I'm really interested in at the moment and really excited to, to look into more is this uh, kind of concept of experiential avoidance, um, the kind of uh, the fight between trauma, particularly childhood trauma, uh, emotional eating and experiential avoidance. Um, 
so basically with that we we essentially have somebody who has experienced a traumatic uh, traumatic event in their early life and as a result feel very difficult and negative things or think very difficult and negative things and so to get away from those thoughts and feelings they engage in behaviors what we call under adversive control um, and they are often kind of health harming so substance abuse um, self-harm uh, but also binge eating as well now there's no studies that have looked at that in this particular population um, but something i'm hopefully going to be looking to uh, in the future is really exciting so you're sort of suggesting um because you almost lost me there joe but you're sort of <laughs> suggesting there's a complex interaction between a number of different factors and i think mm. you, you you mentioned ford um as far as i can recall um i was thinking because the first one you mentioned did you say it was a did you term it attentional attentional bias yeah bias yeah mm. so to put it in crude terms does that mean something like if i've got a very keen interest in battenberg cake which i do have <laughs> if i store 10 of them for a rainy day i'm going to eat them all on day two sort of thing is that i'm more likely to eat them all on day two no it does have something to do again with with your um propensity propensity to consume more food than you need um or kind of this kind of overeat i suppose is the term but say if you have kind of um higher levels of disinhibition kind of just general disinhibition it may be that you eat more cake more more battenberg um on that second rainy day than somebody who has lower levels of disinhibition um but like you said you said it perfectly it's a, it's a complex interplay between those things um uh but we don't know for sure. Again, this is something that we need to kind of look into into a lot more, I think. And I suppose also in, in that, there, I mean, there's something about the kinds of food that people overeat on. I mean, nobody overeats lettuce, do they? Um, <laughs> you know, it is Battenberg cake or crisp mm. or things that things that are less less healthy. And I suppose the I'm just reading that ultra processed people at the moment, mm -hmm. uh, which is fascinating in uh, in terms of a how the foodstuffs we're eating might not be proper foodstuffs, so causing problems for our bodies. But then also, you know, if we're eating lots of sugary food or things that that reinforce us to keep eating, um, uh, I'm not sure that it's always about appetite, is it? But the you know what else is going on. The rewarding qualities of the food um, have a massive, massive impact. And again, that's what's kind of un embedded in that attentional bias kind of um, literature and the theory. Um, this kind of incentive salience, the the biological impact that these foods have. You know, they're, they're substances, essentially. They are addictive substances, um, sugary foods. So um, the same processes are, are going on in the brain as um, other kind of substances that are used for abuse. And do you think, you know, you referred to kind of like the, the getting into unpicking the relationship between trauma and obesity. I was just thinking that kind of when you've got a history of trauma, people often end up spending a lot of mental energy thinking about their trauma, you know, feeling emotionally activated during the course of the day. And I guess if you're if you've already got a bit of a weight problem and you're wanting to lose weight, it requires you to be quite mindful for quite a lot of the day. And have you got the mental, you know, is, is there any work around kind of like the cognitive load of trying to eat healthy when you perhaps have got this backdrop of trauma at the same time? 
I'm not sure of any work. That's a really good point. It's not something I thought of, but that's, um, yeah, I think again, um, when I was kind of uh, making that link between trauma and experiential avoidance and emotional eating, that's just the link. I think what you're talking about there is kind of the underlying mechanism at play. I think that's really interesting. Um, yeah, good point. I think certainly um, the other thing that I think, I mean, it's probably just anecdotal, but but I don't, don't know if this is your experience as well, David, but quite often I think with overweight patients in hospitals or prisons, if when people have got a history of trauma, they often talk about overeating as a way of disguising their bodies, as a way of protecting themselves from, you know, in the same way that someone might not shower. Um, to, and I don't know if, if, if you've happened across that in your research at all. Well, the... the... I'm not sure if you've heard of the kind of seminal ACE study by um, Feliti mm-hmm. uh, in the in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, that study was was based around Feliti, who was a clinician in, a, in an obesity clinic, mm-hmm. and he found that those that were doing the best ended up relapsing or leaving the clinic much earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he looked into it a lot more and found that actually, well, at least possibly that it was uh, they, they felt they had no kind of self defense mechanism in a, in, a, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also some other research by by PAC. You know, I think it's 2008. The paper was published, and um, yeah, there was a qualitative study, and essentially the the participants were saying that they they wanted to um, gain weight to um, they felt it would make them more uh, unappealing to their kind of uh, their to their abuser, mm-hmm. um, and others said it was kind of protection and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So I think is there's weight behind that that kind of that theory for sure. I think. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. But, but I think you've also looked at the role that environment might play. And are the environments that we're treating patients in obesogenic, I think was the word that you used? Mm. Yeah, sure. Yes, yeah. so we just we recently published a study. It was in uh, August last year. So, um, yeah, it was a qualitative study interviewing uh, staff members um, about why they thought uh, patients in the service were were gaining weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and why they might have been obese um, and kind of the central kind of theme that came from that was the environment itself is obesogenic um, and you know uh, patients are highly restricted um, they are admitted in many cases under restriction orders um, they might be some time before they're allowed to leave the clinic or uh, attend the gym um, uh, and that kind of stuff so there's certain restrictions that mean that you know, patients can't can just engage in physical activity when they feel motivated to, which is often fairly limited, um, given their kind of their circumstances. So, um, yeah, I think the and that's not to bash the secure setting. I mean, the secure setting is a fantastic place for people to have their mental illness treated, to um, learn skills they may not have learned prior to their admission. Uh, interpersonal skills, uh, building relationships and that kind of thing. Um, but there is something about the environment that does have an impact on their physical health. Um, and I'm not sure the services are kind of really aware of that. Um, the kind of more higher up people who who kind of run these services and stuff. Uh, I'm not sure they're, they're totally aware of the impact that the, the setting has, which they should, in my opinion. And what, what are the health implications of obesity for psychiatric patients? I think there's there's two kind of key key implications. There's the physical health and the mental health. So I think with the physical health, obviously, um, 
people with serious mental illness. The majority of people in secure settings have uh, a severe mental illness. Uh, many have comorbid physical health issues, cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease, type 2 diabetes, uh, and other uh, kind of obesity-related uh, diseases, which ultimately is a massive contributor to this, you know, what we what we we know about this uh, very reduced life expectancy. You know, it's 15 years lower than the general population, um, and up to a third of these deaths, or might even be two thirds, is related to um, these physical health or physical illnesses, comorbid physical illnesses. So there's massive physical health implications. But again, if you think about the mental health implications as well, these people want to be, or they're being treated for their mental illness. Uh, but obesity can have massive implications for self-esteem, self-worth. People who are obese uh, are more um, self-stigmatizing. People who are, have mental illnesses are more self-stigmatizing. So is there like a, you know, a dual stigma effect happening there um ultimately you know it serves to have an impact on their recovery you know they they they, they don't feel good about themselves how are they expected to get better in this environment if they don't feel they're worth much yeah mm. so yeah two key two key issues there physical health and mental health um yeah you, you referred to stigma there and there is kind of like a sense of um you know, one of the things I liked about in that um, ultra process book actually was he justified the person who wrote it justified justifies talking about obesity as a disease because of the shame that's there around obesity. That there's an assumption that people, if people are overweight, that it's it's all their own fault. They're just too greedy. Um, and I wondered, you know, I was, before we were interviewing you, I was thinking. You know why hasn't why hasn't it been an area that's been considered worthy of attention before because it is so I mean you're saying kind of like potentially 80% of the patient population is overweight you know why hasn't it been considered interest worthy mm. previously and is that a reflection of the stigma around obesity or is something else going on it's 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 difficult to know I think I mean so there are kind of public health documentation that have been published that have aimed to improve uh, food provision in secure settings but service evaluations of those are very rarely conducted I don't know of any that have been conducted really um, and again I, I my and this is not the only evidence I have for this is the conversations I've had with staff members and that's that that study we published but there's an element of let's focus on the psychiatric stuff because this is a psychiatric based environment. Um, you know, mental health nurses don't feel often it's within their remit to, um, to deal with physical health, the physical health problems of their patients because they're not general nurses, they are mental health nurses. Um, psychologists uh, sometimes aren't, um, they're not trained in health psychology, you know, they're, they're, they're there, they're, they're clinical psychologists, they're, they're there to improve um, all manner of things. And often some psychologists will, will kind of implement uh, general uh, kind of healthier behavior change stuff, but not always. And that's, it's understandable though, because like, again, a mental health nurse trains to be a mental health nurse, not a general nurse. Um, a psychiatrist is trained to be 
psychiatrist, not a, a GP. Um, so I think there's just there's just a lack of kind of integrated physical healthcare. It's more this is a psychiatric environment. Let's improve their mental illness and reduce their risk because that's what our job is. That's about, thanks, Joe. And as, as we're talking, Jim, reminded of it, we had a conversation with um, Leslie Sobel and Roy Waterman where they were speaking about food and allowing, um, finding ways to make it possible for prisoners in American jails to grow their own food and mm. make meals that were nutritious. And I suppose that really exposed this sense of a lack of really thinking through what the consequences are of a poor a poor diet that actually you know maybe maybe if we paid more attention to what people were ingesting and tried to work more actively to promote mm. healthier behavior you know would we see less aggression less mm. you know improvements in in mental well-being generally and I know you probably don't have the answer to that but I, I wonder if you do have thoughts about the kind of foods that we make um, accessible to certainly in prisons obviously people are people can cook but they're cooking on a very limited budget and mm. the food stuffs are more expensive to buy for them to buy than it would be for us to go to the supermarket so I just wondered if you have had any thoughts on the food availability oh for sure um I'm not sure I, there I know there is and I, I don't know it enough to 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 recite any real knowledge around it but I know there is some literature around the type of food that you eat and how that can in, uh, increase um uh violence um uh, and that kind of stuff so i was actually at a conference last week in australia and one of the presenters on my kind of i was presenting on on physical health and one of the presenters in in uh, in that session actually looked at um or kind of was was uh promoting uh, blood lipid levels as a marker of of uh, violence risk so uh that was really interesting um but i don't know the literature enough to to kind of have any real knowledge around it in terms of the actual kind of availability and stuff of food i think it's really interesting the way that uh, uh, and important the way that food is provided not just the food that they have but the way it's provided so in many um nhs-based services patients will get lunch and they'll get dinner provided for them they'll get lunch around midday and they'll get dinner around five o'clock what happens from five until the morning or lunchtime you know you know the staff go home they can't go out of the service necessarily what do they have to do they're bored you know again many of them aren't feeling particularly great the best thing they can do is to feel good is to ingest those high reward foods which i think is uh is is, is a really important thing that to, that needs to be addressed the other thing is which i found really stark and, and we found in that paper is that Patients will know what day of the week it is based on what is for dinner, which I think is tragic. Um, again, there's public health documentation that's tried to improve the quality and um, uh, the taste of foods for, for patients, but it's obviously not enough, I think. Um, so it has a massive, massive impact, uh, I think. It reminds me when I worked at the John Howard Centre and the patients there, would have their three meals a day, plus a bit extra. But then in the evening, they'd be able to order in a pizza or fried chicken or something. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, the issue is we don't, 
we don't want to restrict them anymore though do we that's this is the thing it's such a delicate delicate issue because there's so many restrictions uh you know let's let us have them let's let them have something tasty and delicious you know at least let's at least give them that you know there's a sense of that so it's a really difficult issue to to tackle um and something that i don't envy policymakers kind of having to deal with in the future if they do hopefully good i'm, I'm glad you don't envy them i don't either but, <laughs> but um it reminds me also because i was in hospital for a couple of days last year first time since i had my tonsils out as a kid and um what struck me was there was a lot of food yeah mm. they were always bringing around food breakfast lunch tea and it was like going back to when i you know live with my mum um because the food was very similar yeah mm. <laughs> sort of meat meat pie and mashed potato and that which i loved actually but mm. it did make me wonder and this will apply to psychiatric hospitals as well as general hospitals but shouldn't there be more of an input from nutritionalists i think this is a really really key problem and and something that i found working in that secure um service i was working during my phd was the lack of input from a nutritionist and i don't know whether that is um kind of across the board um there is a little bit of data that kind of elucidates some of that which i'll talk about in a sec but um ultimately i i, you know, I never saw the nutritionist i've, I've tried to commute you know tried to communicate with the nutritionist to discuss what was going on um in that national review of welsh inpatients the there's data in that review that shows the amount of input from nutritionists and it's remarkably low um for a population who are you know the majority are obese to have such little communication with a nutritionist a physical health professional you know of any kind is extraordinarily low mm. um I don't know why I don't, I, you know, I don't I'm, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm, I, I don't know how it works. Are they assigned to several hospitals and therefore they have lots of ground to cover? I don't know what it is, but I think it would be an amazing, an amazing resource um, that should definitely be utilized more. Um, I know some services have like a physical health team that includes a nutritionist, which is fantastic, but it, you know, Again, this this is a global problem. This is not just kind of localized to one secure service. It's it should be perhaps a blanket kind of uh, provision, uh, perhaps. I suspect the people who get referred, like in prison, will be the people where there's a you know their health is really seriously compromised by their obesity, and yet we know that um, you know that obesity will be impacting way before they're they're at mm. that point, don't we? Absolutely, absolutely. Do you have any other ideas about how we could improve things? You know, do do people with lived experience that you've interviewed have, could they play a, a bigger role in contributing to shaping policy? I think, I think that's a, a, would be a huge, huge benefit. Unfortunately, I haven't. That was kind of one of the one of the caveats to, to that um, qualitative study I published was we didn't interview uh, patients, which we. You know, we should have. There's a reason. You know, the reasons were ultimately because we didn't want to kind of overburden with patients, and you know, we'd done some other research with them. But ultimately, yeah, there needs to be kind of you know, that's the kind of next step, isn't it? It's it's asking the patients themselves what you know what is going on for you. What what do you think is the issue here? What is your experience? Um, and what do you think um needs to be done to help you? 
um, I think that's vital. I think, yeah, uh, patient involvement is absolutely vital. But also there's so many other things that need to be done as well. Um, again, we need to be thinking about kind of the, the input that, or kind of um, recognition from the kind of very higher up people and how the, the environment is impacting um, patients' weight. Um, I think I'm one of quite a few, I mean, there are a few researchers that are looking into this problem. Um, and it, it is getting more traction. I mean, at that conference, there was a session specifically dedicated to physical health within forensic settings. So, you know, it's, it's about promotion of kind of this issue and it's not gonna be for everyone, um, that's a given. But as long as kind of us researchers are chipping away at the issue and trying to find out more, you know, hopefully that will snowball into some sort of kind of lasting change in the future. Um, but patient involvement, absolutely vital. Joe, just thinking, you're obviously spending a lot of time thinking about obesity and its impact on wellness and well-being. And does that make, does that cause you to have reflections or questions about wider society and um, obesity and the because you know, obviously it's a it's a big problem, isn't it, for the for the certainly the Western world? Mm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it's <laughs> I was driving um back to swansea um where i'm from from cardiff very recently and i drove past the new um fancy private hospital that they've they've created and next or just past that new fancy kind of uh health center there was a gigantic billboard of mcdonald's um of the most kind of uh uh wonderful looking burger no doubts well i think it's actually had a Burger King of the day that was 1200 calories so I mean there's just such a it's such a confusing society that we live in right it's just like I don't know much about kind of uh, the philosophy around consumerism and kind of um, capitalism and that kind of stuff but I, I assume it has that you know it has a big part to play um, and it's almost like for me especially it's kind of like the more I demonize these kind of I mean <laughs> We shouldn't really be demonizing people for having high calorie foods. We should be treating ourselves. You should be allowed to have whatever food we want, really. It's just kind of recognizing um, the impact that too much of this kind of high calorie, very tasty, rewarding food can have on um, your body. And if you are in a position where you struggle really, really you know, a lot to um, inhibit your consumption of these foods, then we need to help as much as we can, you know? Um, yeah, uh, it's it's a it's a nightmare because I have to kind of count calories and stuff all the time, <laughs> which gets gets really frustrating. Um, and then often I'll just have you know a whole thing of Ben and Jerry's. Um, yeah, you know, and that's difficult for me, who's very privileged, who you know lives at home and can do whatever I want very freely. Where we have people who are in secure care that you know get a lot from eating um, very delicious foods that are high calories. And so just coming to, coming to the end, Joe, how, how do you keep yourself psychologically healthy and nourished while studying, you know, something that actually has the capacity to really be quite painful part mm. of life for people? I, I get very into things, I'm very obsessive with things, and I like to call them healthy obsessions. Um, I love to exercise. Um, 
it seems kind of cliche, but I do love to exercise. Um, I like to grapple. Uh, so I, um, well, not very recently, but I generally practice um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which I find um, kind of um, uh, incredibly mentally, st mentally stimulating, but also um, kind of uh, being able to practice kind of mindfulness in those spaces are really, really important um, for me. Laying off steam is obviously just a really big, big, big part of it. Um, and also trying my best to do absolutely no work when I can, but I am a bit of a workaholic, so that's a big struggle. <laughs> but staying active is kind of the big thing. Thank you very much. That's great. Thanks, Thanks for a lot. Thanks a lot, Joe. And and uh, yeah, I'm still remembering that statistic you gave us that uh, such patients have a loss of 15 years in life expectancy. That's a really powerful statement. Thanks a lot. Mm. Thank you.